and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and today we're kicking off a series of SSI Live podcasts on a recently published multi-author study entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments and Transatlantic Security. The COVID-19 pandemic has unleashed an immense shock to the global economy, as we all know. In Europe, gross domestic product has fallen and unemployment has risen. China might take advantage of the crisis, just as it did in the wake of the global financial crisis of just over a decade ago. As part of its broader national security strategy, China might again use its sovereign wealth fund, government-affiliated Chinese companies, and nominally private Chinese firms to provide necessary liquidity and investment in Europe. In doing so, Beijing could take advantage of Europe's economic difficulties to obtain sensitive dual-use technologies, build its soft power across the continent, and acquire militarily significant infrastructure like ports. To further examine these topics, SSI assembled an interdisciplinary team of experts from the U.S. Army War College, private think tanks, and academia. The resulting study, just published and available now at the SSI website, which is ssi.armywarcollege.edu, has revealed several reasons for serious concern about predatory Chinese economic statecraft in Europe today. To mitigate and manage these concerns, the study includes an array of practical policy recommendations for decision makers on both sides of the Atlantic. And to launch the study, we're recording this series of podcasts with each of the study contributors. Today's our first with Dr. Mark Duckenfield, who was the lead author of the chapter on the economic impact of COVID-19. Mark is Professor of International Economics in the Department of National Security and Strategy, or DINAS, and at the Strategic Studies Institute. He previously served as a, uh, a faculty member at the Air War College and at the London School of Economics, and before that at University College London. He holds an MA and a PhD in political science, both from Harvard University, where he specialized in European political economy. Mark has written numerous academic articles on gold, financial crises, and international political economy, and is the author of the book, Business and the Euro. More recently, his research has focused on the economics of national security. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you, John. Now, Mark, in my introductory remarks, I referenced the potential for China to repeat the role that it played about a decade ago in response to the Great Recession and Europe's sovereign debt crisis. Now, before we address the economic impact of the pandemic on Europe today for our listeners, can you paint a picture for us of what unfolded Back then, in the late 2000s, the early 2010s, uh, what did the last great economic crisis to hit Europe look like, and how did Europe respond to it? 
Well, John, it was a double-edged crisis. Um, the first portion was one that would be very familiar to your American listeners, one that was based around banks being over-leveraged, coming into crisis, and that spilling over into the rest of the economy, where firms suddenly did not have access to capital. They weren't able to pay workers, pay their, their bills, and the financial system started to freeze up. And the European response on that was relatively limited initially because many of the institutions that they now have and which were existent within nation states did not exist at the time. For instance, the ability for a central government to spend vast amounts of money or issue debts to backstop banks. Indeed, much of the European Union's financial system at the EU level had been based around the idea that there wouldn't be bailouts. And that was a particularly sensitive matter in terms of moral hazard that countries were concerned that if their financial system had been making bad bets, you'd be bailing out bad actors, and then hence you would be encouraging future bad behavior. So there's a real tightening of credit. And European companies in particular found themselves starved for cash. And that led them to be looking elsewhere for um, sources of investment, um, of which the Chinese government, Chinese state-owned enterprises were glad to oblige. Now, we don't want to overdo the extent of Chinese um, engagement and influence, although it is, is real and substantial. The amount of foreign direct investment in Europe by Chinese firms has only hit about 3% of the total foreign direct investment stock by 2018. And that's relatively small, but keep in mind the US, um, Japan and other countries have had dozens if not hundreds of years to start accumulating assets in, in Europe. So the Chinese moving from essentially an insignificant amount in the late 1990s up to 3% and growing um, by the uh, late 2010s is quite a significant move. The second financial crisis that Europe faced was the Euro crisis, where particularly in the southern tier countries, Greece being the foremost among them, countries did not have um, enough import revenue, did not have enough income to pay for the debts that they had been uh, accumulating. And this could put a particular strain on government finances. And if, so if, if other European countries, European Central Bank, were unwilling to bail out banks in a financial crisis, they were even less willing to bail out national governments, particularly ones that hadn't been especially straightforward in the extent of their, their finances. So the Greek government and other governments, that, especially in South um, Eastern Europe, that had needs for infrastructure development, they're among the poorer countries in Europe, looked elsewhere for sources of infrastructure. And this is one area that the Chinese have particularly targeted, extending infrastructure support, because it's a dual benefit. The Chinese get a profitable sector of the economy, but at the same time, it ties them into something the Chinese industry um, needs a great deal of, access for Chinese exports that might import into Europe. So that infrastructure funnel is uh, of dual benefit. But it also then, as you've talked about before, poses some strategic issues too.
Okay, Mark, thanks for sort of setting the scene uh, and explaining to us what occurred uh, about a decade ago, more or less. Let's bring that story up to the present now for our listeners. How has the pandemic-induced recession of just the last year or two in Europe manifest itself? And how would you compare and contrast it with the, the Great Recession and the Euro crisis? Well, the recession that comes about from the pandemic is in some ways self-imposed. The European governments, as, as was the case in much of the world, go into lockdown. They put their, their economies on hold. And part of the incentives they want to set up for companies and individuals is not to have them engaging in activity, certainly face-to-face activity with each other. So someone who stays home and is unemployed or, or otherwise, you don't want them to suddenly be facing the tough choice between paying their rent, paying their utility bill, and um, going to work and, infe- and potentially infecting other people. So a large extent of state aid was extended through various mechanisms. And these mechanisms tended to be particular to each European country based upon what policy tools they had at their disposal. If they had particularly close connections with companies, they could funnel the money straight to companies. If, um, if, if they had more direct connections with individuals and individual bank accounts, then they could manage, that might be the case with, say, um, the payment of pensions or child support or, or, or other state welfare policies, they could funnel money in that regard. And the whole idea was to be able to provide financial support for people, financial support for companies, but not to have people get out and interact with each other. At the same time, rather than just let people become unemployed, a large number of European countries, um, Britain, France, Germany in particular, um, decided that they would make payments directly to companies as a sort of a furlough scheme where workers would retain their ties to the companies. They wouldn't technically become unemployed, but they'd be furloughed from work and the companies would continue to pay them and the government would pay a very large proportion, if not all, of their salaries. And this had some particular advantages because for the European countries, they weren't seeing this economic crisis as a failure of the economy or anyone's economic fault. I mean, the the COVID virus wasn't an economic agent, you know, making bad loans. It was was a, a disease. So the economy was considered to be fundamentally sound. So probably best not to cut people's ties with their employers, which would lead to employers then having to recruit new people, losing, you know, losing a step, losing skills. Better to keep people latched in with their existing jobs, with their existing skill set until this pandemic had passed. And that was a strategy that many countries pursued. Governments also provided elements of you know, suspending utility payments, guaranteeing loans, uh, trading, you know, pro- providing financial guarantees, particularly to transport companies like like airlines or, or cruise lines, and providing other mechanisms uh, in addition to the direct healthcare expenditures to support the economy, keep people um, um, being able to feed themselves, being able to live their lives, but at the same time, not uh, not um, encouraging them to spread um, the, the coronavirus around. 
Okay, so it sounds like from what you've told us that not only was the nature of the economic crisis very different than what we saw a decade ago, you know, I think you characterized really the pandemic-induced recession as the result of an exogenous variable, you know, the virus basically, right? Uh, not, as you said, bad loan making or excessive loan making or excessive borrowing. Uh, and you've addressed for us a little bit about how at the state level, some of the European governments responded. Were there other ways that that were uh, that the response to this economic crisis of the last year or two differed from what we saw previously? I'm thinking specifically of the liquidity gap that the Chinese filled a decade ago. Uh, did, is that gap still present now? Have Europeans tried to meet it in some way, either at the state or multilateral level? Yes, that's right, John. The European governments in the wake of the euro crisis had uh, created a variety of institutions that could enable both their governments and the EU to funnel additional resources in times of need. They sort of had to build the ship as it was sailing during the Euro crisis, but the ship was largely built. It wasn't to say they didn't still have things to talk about and and uh, introducing European-wide bonds for the first time, so-called corona bonds, was one uh, mechanism. But one thing they did do was to um, uh, suspend the European requirements on fiscal policy, which was designed to keep countries running relatively low deficits and keep their debt on a downward track. If the government was going to be spending lots of money to keep people at home, they were going to be borrow and people weren't working and paying taxes, they were going to be borrowing a lot. And it was pretty clearly recognized that they would be breaching all sorts of deficit and debt restrictions. So that's been suspended through um, uh, 2022 at the uh, at the uh, earliest, so countries didn't have to get their act together because this was a you know very clear emergency and one that wasn't due to you know the the bad behavior of a individual government. So the moral hazard concerns that had been there during the euro crisis, during the financial crisis, just didn't apply. It sounds like we've seen lots of good examples of uh, frankly learning behavior when it comes to macroeconomic policy across Europe at the state level, but also at the multilateral level. You mentioned the euro bonds or the corona bonds implemented by the European by the European Union or European Central Bank. Let's look ahead now. Um, given what you've outlined for us is, first of all, very different economic crises, that of a decade ago and that of the induced by the pandemic, but also different responses, right? Perhaps more appropriate uh, to the moment right now. Are there risks as we look ahead and as Europe continues to emerge from the pandemic-induced recession. Uh, are there risks that remain in the economic realm that Beijing might leverage moving forward? Uh, yeah, there, there certainly are. I mean, one that would be highlighted is the potential of, of there being a, a insolvency crisis or a, a zombie firm crisis where in normal times, you know, a certain number of firms will go out of business and um, they'll file for bankruptcy, insolvency, and they'll be restructured. And that you know, that, that's the normal course of events. But during the pandemic, uh, there was an insolvency suspension. And normally, when unemployment goes up, so do bankruptcies, but not during the pandemic. Um, unemployment went up, people were paid, but their companies didn't go bust. Um, the government extended loans to them. Now, in normal times, a certain number of those firms really were in bad shape. They really should have gone bust, but the government kept them going. And those those firms at the end of the insolvency um, 
you know, um, holiday are still likely to be in bad shape. Some of them, it might have given them the the space they needed, but in most cases, those companies would likely be going bust. In the case of Germany, just if you were to take the average of where they were in the economic cycle and then the decrease that you you saw, you probably could expect there are about 3,000 zombie firms in Germany. Now, what sectors of the economy are they in? That's not entirely clear because, of course, the firms survived. You, you, you don't know which ones would have gone under. And so you're running into this circumstance where that drop is sort of like the, um, as, as was one observer said, it's sort of like the, the receding sea right before a tsunami comes, that it all pulls back and it all looks fine and you can go out on the sand, but just over the horizon is a big wave coming. And that's what's been potentially built up. So theoretically, there's this uh, wave of insolvent um, countries, companies in Europe that are that have not yet had their day of, of reckoning. They've just postponed it. And rather than spread over a year or two, it's going to start coming to a head when the insolvency holidays um, end or shortly thereafter when they they can't get their their act together. So that would pose an opportunity for companies, perhaps state-owned companies or foreign companies that are looking to buy up the assets of those uh, those distressed um, companies. That's certainly a, a possibility. The other possibility, and it's a two-pronged one, European governments have borrowed a great deal of money to support their economies, but they've also put in sort of a nascent industrial policy at the European level where they've highlighted, and the, and the pandemic has demonstrated the need for uh, in connections for information technology, making the digital backbone more robust. So European spending on that sort of infrastructure is pretty important. Spending on uh, automating uh, ports and other transport and supply chain facilities is, is also of, of some importance. And we see this now with the supply chain bottlenecks and getting, getting through them, that additional infrastructure investment would be pretty crucial. And at the same time, the Europeans are trying to hit their environmental targets to uh, combat climate change. So tying many of the state grants, loans, loan guarantees to, uh, you know, developing alternative en energy, um, refurbishing factories and homes in more energy efficient fashions can promote other policy objectives for the long term that they might not otherwise have had. Thank you so much for teeing this up for us today, for explaining the uh, the, the economic crisis that uh, is still unfolding in Europe and the response to it. This is a great way to kick off this podcast series on the recently released study entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments in Transatlantic Security. You can find that again at the SSI website. Uh, in, con in conclusion, uh, Dr. Mark Duckenfield, Professor of International Economics at SSI, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It was my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us for future episodes of this series here at SSI Live. In our next episode in this short series, we'll address China's strategy toward Europe and what it seeks to get out of its economic statecraft there. We look forward to having you join us. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, 
please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.